This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. I think that that's one way that we we shortchange, I think, men's needs. And uh, I think in a partnership, it's okay to make him feel like you desire him. I think we can put, as women, sometimes we get a little lazy because we think like, you know, he's supposed to do all the work and he's supposed to woo me and all of that. Yeah. And I think that we all need to participate in making the relationship as good as it can be. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we'll find out about the truths and myths of herbal remedies. We'll discuss male sexual dysfunction. We'll also learn about what to expect when you're expecting to have surgery. And lastly, we'll hear about food safety in restaurants. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I am incredibly happy. It's gorgeous outside. It the, is. Uh, sweltering heat is gone. We're now into comfortable summer. Summer that we can all live with. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, t- you know, most of the time we are working uh, from an article that you've written. Yep. And the logic of the interview sort of flows uh, from the article, and we both know where we're going. But we're in uncharted territories today because I came up with an idea, and you very graciously agreed. Uh, We are going to discuss the truths and myths of natural remedies, and in particular, herbal remedies. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so I'm putting on my skeptic's hat. (laughs) And you know me. I love you, and and you've been a guest for as long as we've been doing this show. But there's people out there who still aren't sure about herbal remedies, and they've heard things, or they hear other things, and they don't know where to go with it. So I thought I'd give you, like, I'm going to, these aren't softballs. I'm not lobbing them at you. I'm going to throw some hardballs at you. And I want to see if you can hit it out of the park. I bet you you can. But let's we'll go find, for it. Let's see where it goes. So let's start with the first one because it's a sort of a political issue. Yep. And that is, are herbal remedies drugs? Well, that's, that's kind of a double-edged sword question. And the reason it is, if you look at the true definition of drug, anything that causes a physiological alteration in your body, even if temporary, is a drug. So by the true definition, if we talk to Webster's Dictionary, water is a drug. Uh, Any food you love is a drug. Love is a drug, the famous song. Definitely, it is. But where most people think of drugs is they think of harsh pharmaceutical chemicals that do something and have nasty side effects, or can, excuse me, have nasty side effects. That is one subset. 
I like to think of them, uh, natural health products, as soft drugs. And they're soft in the way that they do have a a pharmacological or physiological effect, but because it's tempered, for lack of a better phrase, it doesn't just throw an effect massively at you. It's slow, it's gentle, but at the same time, by being slow and gentle, the side effects are minimal, if any. Well, you know, there's different ways we can approach this. I look at it sort of like if you're taking a prescribed drug or even over the counter, it has one purpose. The purpose is to attack an ailment or an issue that you're having physiologically or, or, or Usually, medically, yes. right? And, and, and it's directed at that and there may or may Correct. not be side effects, but it is being created or made for that purpose. Whereas the natural remedies exist, but they are being used for a purpose. It isn't that the natural remedies, that is their sole purpose, but it's one of the utilizations. Correct. The other big advantage, and um, you see this when you start studying herbal remedies, is the fact that unlike pharmaceuticals, which normally have one specific physiological action, they just go down one path, there are herbs out there that literally... It's page after page after page of use because their action, different component A, component B, component C, component D that are naturally in the herb do different things in the body. And it's actually fascinating to see because I read a lot of clinical trials and literally on a daily basis, I'll look up a herb that I've known about for 30, 35 years and I've known what it's primarily used for secondarily. All of a sudden, a new clinical trial will show up that says, we used it for this and heck, it worked. Wow. Yeah. The other sort of notion is how does the government perceive it? And there was a sea change in the way natural uh, products oh, were, yeah. were, were perceived, uh, what, 10 years ago? Uh, Eight years ago? About 15. Oh, was it that long? About 15 years ago, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and sort of Health Canada took a different approach with the regulation of it, right? Yeah. What ended up happening is uh, natural health products were at that time regulated the same as drugs. There, there was no distinction between them. What ended up happening is there was a groundswell of uh, consumers looking for change because they saw the products they wanted and were hearing about and reading about were being taken from the market because the natural health products just couldn't meet the standard set for pharmaceutical right. and it drugs. had to do with like clinical testing and, and the amount of the amount of research and and proof that you had to put forward to get to be approved. Right? Correct. And what ended up happening is the government saw that and said, okay, there's got to be a better way. And through a lot of consultation, and when I say a lot, I'm talking years and years and years and tens of thousands of hours, they came to the conclusion that. Yes, they are drugs in the pharmacological sense, but the risk level is so low for 99.999 ad infinitum percent of them that they can be regulated differently. They're still regulated. As a manufacturer, for example, I still have to prove safety and efficacy before I can put any product on the market. It has to get approval by Health Canada. On top of that, my company has to be approved to even manufacture them, label them, or distribute them. We have to meet a whole raft of guidelines, and we have to meet them on a daily basis. So you mentioned something uh, in your last comment about about safety. Correct. All right. So you said 99, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but 99% <laughs> is, is perfectly safe. Correct. So, so let's come up with the next one. Herbal remedies are, are safe, and you cannot overdose on an herbal remedy. Is that true or false? No, that is not true. That is far too blanket a statement. Okay. The, the easiest way to answer that is 
anything that has a pharmacological or physiological effect, you can overdose on. Okay. And I come back to my, my earlier example, water. You can technically overdose on water. And I'm not Absolutely talking drowning. Yep. I'm talking you can drink too much water where it actually will cause hospitalization. Or even death. There are long-distance runners who, if they don't regulate the amount of water they're taking in without minerals or salt, mm-hmm. uh, I forget what the, what the phrase is or what they call it, but they can literally drink so much water that they can put their body into harm. Correct. But the beautiful thing is with... 99.9, and I'll go at my 0.9 yeah. in ad infinitum percent of herbal remedies and natural health products, the the gap between safe, healthy use and overdose is so huge that it is impossible is the wrong word, but extremely unlikely. Not only is it extremely unlikely, you'd have to try to hurt well, yourself. Well, but there are people who do try and hurt Correct. themselves or who have no self-control Correct. or who think, hey, well, if one of these is good, five of these is better. You Correct. Know? Uh, I'm a bit of a wingnut that way myself. Uh, what I tend to do for my company's products before we put them on the market, yeah. I will actually go ad infinitum and see just how far I can push myself. You're the guinea pig? I am. For example, with our liquid chlorophyll, uh, a dose is one tablespoon. I drank a full liter. One day, just to see what would happen. (laughs) Okay. And? And, uh, Basically, what happened was the toilet bowl was a little green. (laughs) Uh, Joel. TMI. (laughs) I didn't go too much. But the beautiful thing about it is you should feel happy that I have that faith in the safety. Yep. That's true. That's illustrative. So let's talk a bit about scientific evidence. Correct. So I think one of the stumbling blocks is because a lot of the companies who have a natural health products don't necessarily have the resources to get them tested, although I know there are obligations to do so. Mm-hmm. There's also sort of uh, a dearth of research with respect to some some products, and not, not all, but some. So... How do we? Where do we stand with scientific proof of natural remedies? I, I presume there's some out there for some. Right? Well, there's wax of it. Is if, it? If if we had this conversation 25 years ago, my lord, it would be like crickets in here. There'd be nothing to talk about virtually. There'd be maybe two or three products that we could say, yeah, there's a clinical trial here, a clinical trial there. Um, but you look at because of the interest that's happened over the last 20 years, you now have universities around the world and institutes around the world and hospitals actually doing clinical research all on their own without any sponsorship by any company. And the amount of research is staggering. For example, you look at a, uh, a herb, for example, milk thistle and silymarin for liver health. Yep. I just did uh, a review for a, a retailer. There's a little under 2,000 clinical trials and papers published that are peer-reviewed, high quality, on the benefits of silymarin and milk thistle on liver health. And that's a huge number. Right. You look at other things like um, curcumin and um, turmeric. Right. You look at echinacea, golden seal. There's probably 500 or 600 herbs where there's say, between 300 and 1,000 clinical trials and papers on each of them. That's not to say all herbs. If there is something out there that you've never heard of and it's brand new, odds are pretty good there's not much research on it. Okay. Let's talk about side effects for a second mm-hmm. because one of the, the earlier comments was uh, that there's, you know, it, it would be rare for there to be side effects. But that that's not a blanket statement, right? Correct. It's not that there are rare to be side effects because any time you have a pharmacological effect, there will be some side effect. The whole point is the vast majority of the side effects are A, known, and B, 
mild in nature and can be mitigated quite easily. Are, are you required to put the side effects on your packaging when you... If known, yes. Yes? We, I have to say if known because there's always something that could happen that is unknown, right. but the odds are pretty darn slim. Okay, so let's talk about some of the ones that people use. For example, St. John's wort. Yep. Uh, what side effects might there be for that? The big well-known one for St. John's wort is photosensitivity. Right. And what photosensitivity means basically is when you go outside in the sun, you're more likely to burn. Hmm. How about aloe vera? People use a lot of aloe vera. Um, aloe vera is one of those interesting ones because you can overdose on that one and the, the reason I say that is a lot of people, for some reason, take a lot of right. aloe vera. Right. And it's one of those ones, if you take the recommended amount as per the label, you're going to be fine 99.9% of the time. But if you go overboard, you might have some issues. The other big thing to remember is with any herbal product, because they are plants, there is a percentage of the population that will have an allergic reaction. Right. Most of the time, and when I say most, I mean the vast majority of the time, it's if you have an allergic reaction, it's something minor. Right. But there are some people which will have a more significant one. So what you end up doing, or if you are if you have an allergy to, for example, the daisy family, right. uh, composite, if you have an allergy to that, all you have to do is you look on the side of the package in Canada, if the natural health product has any member of the daisy family, composite day, it'll pres- it'll say right on the label, avoid if you have an allergy to the daisy family. Huh. Okay, that's good to know. What about ginseng? Well, ginseng's a bit of an odd duck. And the reason it is, is people use ginseng as an overarching term. Right. There's multiple species. Right. You have Asian ginseng, you have North American ginseng, you have Siberian ginseng, and you also have what's known as natto ginseng, which is in the same almost family, but not quite. And the side effects and actually the pharmacological effects are different for each of them. Huh. Okay. So, for example, if you take North American ginseng and you're a woman, you don't have to worry about potentially pushing you over the edge and getting a hot flush. If you take an Asian ginseng and you're a woman, because they're very warm and heating, it's possible that it could trigger a hot flush if you're someone prone to them already. Huh. Because also ginseng in and of itself, all of them are in a family of semi-stimulants, they can cause blood pressure issues. Interesting. Okay, Joel, we have time for one last question, and that is, all supplements are not created equal, are they? No. Like everything else, it starts with the quality of what you start with, how you manufacture it and how much pride and effort you put into it. And the easiest way I can explain that is if you go out and you buy a car and it turns out to be a lemon, doesn't mean all cars are lemons. Right. If you go out and you buy a natural health product and you don't get results, it doesn't mean all natural health products are are, are made poorly. It means that brand of that product is. So very quickly, what sort of things should consumers be looking for uh, for, for the best possible natural health products? In my opinion, the first thing you look for is made in Canada, natural health number, and actually go to the company's website and see if they exist and they're real as opposed to just a... uh, uh, Importing like just a a blank slate who's importing this stuff from from another jurisdiction. Or the, the biggest problem they're finding right now is people who are ordering online from companies they have no idea where they're from, no idea what the product is, and no idea what's in the bottle. Excellent advice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. 
We're going to have to go through this one again. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) But we're going to hear back from you again next month, right? Always. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss male sexual dysfunction on The Tonic. Did you know that you and your company can make an impact in the community by simply ordering lunch? Big or small, it's now possible for companies that require catering services all across the GTA to give back effortlessly. Thanks to a unique partnership bringing together a local caterer, Chef's Catering, and Red Door Family Shelter. For every meal ordered from the Red Door special menu, one meal is given back to the women and children seeking refuge at Red Door. Visit chefscatering.ca to discover the menu and support your community. Vital Directives is a center committed to helping people ignite their innate healing power and remove the barriers of fear that keep them in pain. Through changing their client's mindset and teaching them to connect with their body, the Vital Directives step-by-step process helps them focus, feel safe, and get immediate relief. Their process involves removing the physical limitations induced by chronic pain while creating personalized, high-level self-care and preventative measures. They believe that significantly reducing chronic pain is just the first step. Through powerful physical exercises and mindset shifts, coupled with solid support system, they inspire people to transform from the inside out. For more information, visit their website at vitaldirectives.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Carlisle Jansen, is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. She's also the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival, and she's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com, and you can reach out to her at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Always great to see you, Jamie. Yes. So should I feel threatened about today's topic? <laughs> No, I'm hoping you feel enlightened. I do. I have some things to share. Yeah, great. My wife's gonna be horrified by that thought. (laughs) But but we're we're gonna we're I'm not gonna personalize it. But but I think I actually think this is a really important topic. Completely, and it it doesn't get discussed enough in my view. Completely, and I even a couple women really dismissed it when I brought it up. They're like. You know, and I thought, you know, this is this is part of the issue. We need to we need to address challenges for everybody. Right. Right. So, So. so that we can get to it and, and, and start into it. We're talking about male, and, and we turned it sexual dysfunction, but I think it's a little more complicated it's about than desire, that. particularly. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes men just don't feel like it, right? Right. Yeah. Just like everybody, sometimes men are not in the mood and... Um, you know, we all have our cycles and there's lots of different reasons for it. And some are fixable and some aren't. Um, but I think the main issue is, is that it's something that is important to men and their partners. And that if we just sweep it under the rug and say, oh, it's just men or it's, you know, it's not an issue, then I think it perpetuates the problem. Right. And, and I think what maybe what compounds the problem makes it difficult to have discussions is there's a built-in paradigm of what it is to be male, heterosexual male. Sure. Yeah. And, and in terms of your libido, right? Like the, there's yeah. assumptions that are made, right? Yeah. And so there's a, um, a great uh, book that's um, more recently out um, by Sarah Hunter Murray on male sexual desire. And so she's done some research to actually back this up. And it was done uh, with heterosexual males um, and looking at what the myths are, what they feel like their expectations are and that they're supposed to be ready for sex anytime, yep. <laughs> um, gung-ho, uh, 
higher sexual desire than their partners, um, and basically that they'll have sex with anyone, no yeah. matter how they feel or who that person is. And that they are the drivers of completely uh, of sexuality amongst couples, right? Like yeah, and that's, I mean, I think that's partly the sexual script that we're given by Hollywood, yeah. and I think we all learn it, you know, some people say as teenagers, but I think we learn it from, like, earlier than that, from watching movies and 100%. all kinds of things, you know, YouTube, whatever, um, and that, that you know, men are, men are supposed to be the ones who initiate, and they're supposed to chase, and, right. and they're supposed to sort of seduce, and that women are supposed to kind of say, like, oh, you know, put up a little bit of a fight, be demure. It's not even that they're and, supposed to, but the, the, the women just are. They're less, they in, are. They're yes. less interested. That yes. they're, they're never going to initiate or engage. They have to be engaged. Uh, right. right. Well, and if they are engaged, then they're deemed sluts. So, yeah. so they decide to stick the script regardless of how they actually feel. Okay. So within that framework, what are yeah. some of the reasons that men may not feel like they want to proceed yeah. as it were? Um, sometimes there are health issues going on. So yeah. certainly low testosterone plays a part um, and uh, can make a big difference. Um, people who are depressed generally have lower sexual desire and that applies to men as well. Uh, there are certain medications, ironically, including antidepressants, some of them. Oh, really? Yeah. So some of them, uh, some are better than others. Um, and that's a great thing to talk to your MD about if you're finding that as a side effect. Um, well, there's an understanding close side effect of, of antidepressants and I sort of know this anecdotally yeah. from people that I know that are on them and that yeah. is some people experience weight gain right? Um, and, and it's inexplicable, inexplicable to right. them yeah. uh, and they don't like they're not changing their diet or exercise but right. they're putting on more weight and then it affects their body image right. and then they don't necessarily want to engage right. in sex because they're yeah. feeling different about themselves even though they're supposed to feel quote unquote better. Right. You know? Yeah and certainly you know uh, lots of different um, medications are going to have that side effect and body right. image plays a huge piece into it and oh tell me about um, it yeah you, you know when I was really obese mm-hmm. I couldn't picture myself really engaging with anybody including my wife who I'd been with for years it was just hard for me to think of sure. myself that way yeah when I didn't like the way I was you yeah know? And, and we it, think of you know women having body image challenges but men do as well of course and 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 so that sexual self-esteem that body image um, you know I've had situations with men where they have a hard time getting an erection and then therefore are you really excited to initiate sex again right yeah, <laughs> no, no right so that affects your your libido, if your partner has shamed you for that, um, if you feel like your partner says, you know, you're oversexed, right? <laughs> right? That's not going to feel so good. If And if you've got turmoil around, you know, work or other stressors um, in your relationship, for some people that drives them to have more sex. Um, for some, it drives them to have less sex. Um, and one big one that I found also with men is financial and professional insecurity. No question. Because we identify. Yeah. We, we are we are That's defined by what we do completely and if you're not happy with what you're doing i suppose it's the same thing as putting on 20 pounds you know you don't feel good about yourself it's hard to to sort of get in the moment you know well and and the whole role that men are supposed to have is the provider and right. if you're if you're not financially stable you're not a good provider and that other people are relying on you not always, but sometimes, yeah. and or at least that's the that's the piece that men are told. So that has also affected lots of people I know in terms of their libido. They just tend to lose that, and I find it ironic that several people I know, as soon as they got a better job or or a job or felt like they were more secure, all of a sudden their libido came back. 
Yeah. Interesting. No, but, it may, or, but it's tied to your, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, for sure, right? But yeah. it's tied to your confidence. Yeah. I also I also wonder, you know, in a, in a strange way, whether sort of the modern men is sort of a sexual object, although we'll, mm. we'll come to that differently. Yeah. Like like men in uh, media now, like whereas it used to be women, right. it was the paragon of attractiveness. But right. you're kind of getting that with men now too, right? Like uh, more sure. so than in years past where like there's now uh, a, a paradigm, you know, of what men have to look like. Like how right. physical they have to be, how strong right. they have to be. And, yes. Uh, yeah. And that pressure is not often not helpful, um, right. you know, and uh, I do think that, you know, we need to um, do our best to look after ourselves. And, of course. and sometimes I see people out on dates and one person is wearing sweatpants and the other's dressed to the nines. And I'm yeah. thinking, you know, yeah. like put it's a little bit first, of effort. First and last date, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's often the, you know, a few years in and we, we just take each other for granted. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I do think that we, need to put on our best selves, right. you know, for our partners. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, we need to be who we are rather than trying to be somebody else or or try and change our bodies or feel not good about our best selves. Right. I think another problem is is that men are expected to quote unquote man up, you know, like oh, yeah. whatever it is you're feeling, you've got to sort of suppress that sure. and, and just, you know, do your duty, right? Absolutely. And, and what happens is that when... Um, men are worried. So there's two things where they feel like if they don't show their desire, they're either going to be criticized for not being man enough, right? right? And so then that's going to reflect on their relationship, on their self-esteem. So they just they just initiate even if they don't feel like it, yep. which is unfortunate, um, or pretend that they have the libido when they don't. And the second is that sometimes if their partner has low self-image body-wise, and again, this is focused on heterosexual couples, but it could very well be applied to other relationships. So sometimes women, because we expect that men are supposed to be horny all the time, if he's not initiating or if he refuses my advance, that must mean, like if he'd have sex with anyone and he won't have sex with me. I must be terrible. I must be so ugly. He must be not attracted to me. What's wrong with me? And so in order to protect her, which I think often comes from a genuinely loving place, he's going to go along with it or he's going to initiate so that she feels good about herself and he's going to compromise his needs. Um, Now, having said that, you know, talking to lots of women who will have sex when they don't necessarily want to, but it's for a bit of a different reason, right? It's often, you know, women are like, they feel a duty, they feel like he wants sex, I should put out, you know, which is not necessarily great and there's ways of working around that. Um, But for men, it's the same issue where they are having sex when they don't want to. It's just the motivation slightly different. Yeah, and and the next point that you wrote about in your article that's coming up in the September issue Mm. is that, uh, you know, women are used to feeling desired, mm-hmm. but do men think about that? Do they want to be desired and are they being desired? And you know? Well, yeah, I think that's another one of the myths that, you know, men don't care about that, right? That yeah. they just, uh, they're horny all the time, no matter what. And we don't need to really make them feel desired because they don't need that. We're but, self-starters. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, um, in this same study from Murray, that 94.5% of um, the men said that 
feeling desired was very or extremely important to their sexual experience. I can tell you, it's important to me. Yeah, I, I like sure. to I like to feel that yeah. I'm I'm attracted to my partner and that yeah. I'm desired, and I'm, yeah. it's not just because I'm there. You right, know, you right, know? yeah, absolutely. It's great for all of us, and so I think that that's one way that we we shortchange I think men's needs, and uh, I think in a partnership, it's okay to make him feel like you desire him. I think we can put as women sometimes we get a little lazy because we think like you know he's supposed to do all the work and he's supposed to woo me and all of that yeah. and I think that we all need to participate in um, making the relationship as good as it can be. So how would you do, like I mean do, do the studies say what men like and how, the, how they're made to feel desired? <laughs> <laughs> it did um, and so uh, what came up is that compliments like you mentioned yep. um, about their looks and their personality were important so you know you're really hot you're really yep. smart you make me laugh um, uh, another thing is when a partner flirts with them that feels great sure does um, uh, physical touch just you know you're watching TV or you're standing beside each other and a little bit of a stroke can feel good um, initiation of sexual contact is huge I find um, I found that a lot in my client work um, that you know sometimes men don't want to pursue all the time they get right. tired and of having, that having their partner so, sort of get the proceedings going is, yeah, is nice absolutely. Yeah. and even if that's a little text that's like you know hey do you want it tonight yeah. you know and then the then then her if she's nervous her partner can still do the the next part but um, uh, but sort of saying you know like you know initiating that you're interested and then finally enthusiasm right yeah. doesn't mean you have to be loud and scream but just you know showing that you're having a good time and it's being gotta be into real. it it's, it's gotta, gotta be real absolutely absolutely and I think that makes a huge difference um, to partners okay we have time for one last question yeah and that is what, what do you think the benefits are uh, for men feeling desired within the relationship um, I think that it takes the pressure off of men to always be the pursuers. I think it also allows women to, to find a little bit of sexual agency, to find their voice, to decide, you know, this is what I want to do. And if sex isn't working for you, okay, make it work for you, right. right? Take control. And I think it also allows men to be a little vulnerable and allows them to um, open up a little bit more, which I think benefits everybody in a relationship, not only sexually, but enables it in other realms as well. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, but you'll come back again next month. I will see you then. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to discuss what to expect when we're expecting to have surgery on the tonic. Urinary tract infections are the worst and can come back again and again, making life miserable. Utiva is a 100% natural daily supplement that stops UTIs before they start. Utiva is recommended by doctors, drug-free, and made in Canada. For an exclusive 25% discount, visit us at utivahealth.com. That's utivahealth.com. Or call us at 1-888-622-3613. That's 1-888-622-3613. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. 
For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Patrick Nellis is a registered respiratory therapist, certified clinical anesthesia assistant, holds a Bachelor of Science from Queen's University, and is currently pursuing an MBA. He's the past president of the Respiratory Therapy Society of Ontario and past chair of the Anesthesia Assistant Section of the Canadian Anesthesiologist Society. Say that twice. He is currently the vice chair of the Technical Committee on Preoperative Safety for the Canadian Standards Association. He's the author of a new book entitled Ready for My Surgery, Be Informed, Stay Safe and Take Control During Your Journey Through Surgery. This book is part of a new surgical patient engagement program called Ready for My Surgery, designed to support and empower patients and families that find themselves in need of surgery. Welcome to The Tonic, sir. How are you? Thanks for having me, Jamie. So why on earth did you write this book? Why, what compelled you to write it? Yeah, fair question. You know, I spent most of my clinical career in the operating room, and I took a lot of what I knew for granted. But, you know, in the course of my career, I got, had the opportunity to travel to different operating rooms, literally from coast to coast across Canada, from St. John's to Victoria. And eventually one thing stood out to me, and that was really that, you know, patients in the operating room often, despite our best efforts, still really uh, are struggling to understand what's happening to and around them. Yeah. And I really got to the place where I felt, you know, what I knew, um, other people may want to know. So, and I sort of spent some time thinking about what that could look like, and and I really landed on a book. I enjoyed writing, and I thought if I could get this out uh, on paper for people to read and help them prepare ahead of time by knowing a little bit better, uh, a little bit more about the process and what happens in the operating room, I thought they could have a better experience. So that's where it all sort of kicked off. Yeah, I, I think when people understand what's happening to them, uh, they sort of accept their situation in a different way. And, and something like surgery, where it's so important uh, that you go into it uh, your best self because you're coming out of it, perhaps you're not best self. Right. Uh, you know, I would, I would imagine this is really going to impact people's ability to recover, which is essentially what you want in surgery. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I learned through the process of writing the book, and it took me a few years to really um, get down in uh, everything I wanted to say that I felt like was important. I really appreciated the fact that the patient's role in the process is really vital to for them getting the outcome that they're looking for. And I think it's something that a lot of people may not appreciate, at least to the degree that I do now. And part of what I'm trying to share is that your participation as a patient is um, really important. So part of the process of when you find out you need surgery is figuring out what your role is. What things do you need to do in order to really get the outcome that you're seeking? You mean you're not just the slab on the table? You know, for many years, people would just, you know, feel like they had to put 100% of their faith in the healthcare providers and that they would look after everything. But the truth is, is it, that's just not the case. You have a role to play, just like everyone else in the healthcare team has a role to play. And the better you understand your role and the role of everyone else on the team, you know, the better you can work together and achieve the outcome you're looking for. So why is it that people don't know this already? Like, why aren't the doctors or the caregivers providing this information de rigueur? You know, it's interesting. You know, a lot of healthcare professionals are 
are certainly tight on time these right, days. No, no right? question. And, you know, you go in to see your surgeon or you do your preoperative visit. There's a lot of information exchange, but um, the whole picture isn't really something that is easily, uh, you know, patients have trouble comprehending everything that needs to go into the process, everything they need to do. So the bigger picture of understanding what their role is in that bigger context can be overwhelming just with a couple of visits. And often the like face-to-face visits you'll be having will often be really focused, you know, focused on the surgery itself, and the, what you need and to the do. outcomes and the risks. You got it. You know, right. all that stuff is, and you have to go through that, but we don't have time to really get into the bigger picture of, of things. And that's what I'm trying to accomplish with the, with the ready for my surgery program. I also think, you know, maybe a personality thing with some doctors and surgeons, you know, they, in their mind, their role is preeminent. They have to be on, they have to make sure there's no mistakes yes. and, you know, without, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out generally. Some of them have God complexes <laughs> and they aren't necessarily the warmest or fuzziest of people. Uh, so, you know, it might be intimidating to ask these sorts of questions of your surgeon when you're only there perhaps for, you know, a brief, uh, a brief meeting where they're throwing all the other information at you. Yeah, absolutely. It can be very intimidating. And, you know, for many people, surgery may be the first encounter with the healthcare system. And so they're really at a disadvantage in terms of holding their own. You know, I'm 53 years old and I've never had surgery in my life. Yeah. Can you imagine? Uh, you know, and, and I'm, I wonder how many people are out there too. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do. And where to start, you know? And, and so this, and this is part of where it comes in. And so one of the things that I wanted to also introduce in, in the program and in the book were stories, things that people, you know, stories from other patients and so people could relate to that situation and have a better understanding of, you know, what to expect, but also to really figure out what are some of these key things that they really want to take control of and get organized and get prepared. So how do you keep track of what's important pre-surgery? Let's get into some of the practicalities. Sure. So you're going to get a lot, you may potentially get a lot of information, a lot of papers, brochures, that this, you know, information overload sometimes when you, during the visits that you have, and it is hard to keep track of these things. So one of the things that I tried to do in the book is create a comprehensive checklist so that as you move through the process, you have somewhere to keep track of all the vital pieces of information that you need. Everything from dates for tests and, and, you know, blood work to you know what your family history is in terms and your medical conditions and your and the sure. medications you're taking so you know it, it it's interesting to put it into context a checklist seems simple but the operating the operating room team uses a checklist every day for every surgery so they don't miss something vital and important, even if it seems simple, like confirming a patient's identity or the side right. of the surgery you mean whether they're operating on the right person you got it so so and so the when when you go into the hospital, you're going to be a little bit stressed. It, it's it's common for of people course. to have a little bit of stress. So if you've already prepared and you've got all of your information organized, when the professionals come and ask you what medications you're taking and how much of which and when did you change, if you have all that prepared and it's all written down, it takes a lot of that stress away and it gives the your healthcare providers accurate information. And that's what you want. Okay. So let's say somebody was, was going to have surgery. What are some of the things that they should be doing pre-surgery that you would recommend that maybe they're not thinking of? Mm -hmm. Some of the simple things that go along with general health is just, um, you know, trying to have good nutrition. I mean, that's actually quite important for wound healing afterwards. Good nutrition, 
exercise to your ability and to the recommendations your, you know, your doctors have given you. But being in good health before you go in will help with your recovery. But a couple of things that people may not think about too much, but then realize on the day of surgery they really needed this information was preparation about understanding your medical conditions. You know, if you have some, you know, what are they? What does it mean for you? Are they stable? Or, you know, and what medications are you taking to help with those? Right. Have those medications changed recently? Do you have allergies? And then also you'll be asked about your family history. You know, does, you have, does your family have a history of this? These are questions that are hard to answer in the moment. But if you have some time and you talk to your family doctor right. or talk to your family, then these things are, these are some of the things that you can prepare ahead, write down, and then have ready to go. Okay. What are some things that people might be surprised to hear that they should be doing? You know, these are, these are sort of the, the basics of getting yourself organized. But right. What else is there that, that people might be really surprised to, to know that they should do? I think the level of engagement, the level of um, participation that patients are going to be asked to bring to the table today is going to be quite different than it was just even five years ago. What do you mean by that? So they're going to be asked to participate in their care shared decision-making, for example, rather than the healthcare team or the doctor making the decision of what's best for you, you're going to be expected to participate and decide with them in many cases, certainly with progressive institutions, that shared decision-making around your care should be something that people are going to come to expect now that in the past may not have been the case. So there is now a lot of movement toward having patients having a um, an equal seat at the table, if you will, as part of their healthcare team. Are the doctors receptive to that? It, uh, like, I, I find it surprising that they would be. Yeah, so, you know, it's a culture shift. I, and, I would imagine. And so, I, but and I think there's there's certainly a social movement toward it. You know, the the, um, the Ontario government has a, a council for a patient and family advisory council. And this is a lot of what they do. They work to get the patient voice at the seat of the table for decision-making, not just, not just on an individual basis and having individual conversations, you know, that's important, but also on a healthcare system level. How are hospitals run? What things are, the way hospitals are providing patient care? Is it in the best interest and does it suit the patient needs foremost versus, you know, versus their own or versus the healthcare providers? So that shift is happening. It's a culture shift and it's a culture shift, not just for the providers, but the patients too. Okay. How can, so, so if, if I'm a patient and I want to get involved mm-hmm. beyond just my own pending surgery, how would you go about getting on an advisory board or participating in other ways? I'd say most hospitals have patient family uh, advisory boards or councils, or at least positions where they have the opportunity to share their experience and participate. So, you know, if you're looking to volunteer some of your time, right. th- that's an opportunity to get involved there. But even as simple as you've had a healthcare experience, it was positive, it was negative, there's room for improvement or things you would like to reinforce that was done really well. Those are, I would say, don't hesitate to bring those to the hospital. Hospital administration um, is really interested in hearing what you say. Okay, if people are interested in finding out more information, what's the website? 
So the website is www.readyformysurgery.com, and uh, that has all the information you need. And you know, my new book, Ready for My Surgery: Be Informed, Stay Safe, and Take Control During Your Journey Through Surgery. That will uh, hit shelves uh, this November. So I'm really excited to get that in patients' hands. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show today. Appreciate it, Jamie. Thanks for the time. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss clean and dirty restaurants on the tonic. Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Vito Marinuzzi was born and raised in Toronto's East End and came up in the restaurant industry the old-fashioned way, through nepotism. His cousin, restaurateur Gio Rana, hired him as a 15-year-old dishwasher and busser and later gave him a shot as a waiter. Vito's job was as much to fight the prevailing whitewashed version of Italian food in Toronto as it was to get people to try the good stuff, and he did. Now as co-owner with his famous mom of two locations of seven numbers on the Danforth and Eglinton West, Vito knows that the food his kitchens prepare not only preserve that culinary heritage, but innovate within it. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. Yourself? I am doing well. I'm worried about today's topic. Yeah, I know. I thought you would be, (laughs) because we're always talking about like fantastic places to go and fun places to eat, but we're we're going a little bit different direction this time, right? uh, Yeah, I've I've thought about it. It's tough. You know, you don't want to slam anyone and you don't want to... No, no, we're not not, not calling out people. There's like a point... Well, anyway, we'll talk about it. We're not going to call out people, but I think it's important. I think food safety is something that people are concerned about when they go out to eat, and I think it's relevant that we at least broach it. 100%, yeah. So what are the sorts of health issues that as a restaurateur you're dealing with? I mean, there's, the list would be almost endless. There's lots of them. I mean, the, the kitchen staff and actually all the staff now, we just we bring someone in now yearly to do the course with us in-house. What course are we talking about? Uh, like a food safety course. So the city teaches one. Right. Uh, and everybody that's cooking has to have a certificate. So in order to get your license, do you have to teach this course once a year? Get, in order to get your green pass, the person in charge of the kitchen and one other person, I believe, have to have, you have two people in-house with the certification. We went sort of above that and took uh, most of our senior staff and all of the kitchen staff back, even the guys who do prep. Yep. And we bring somebody in and just teach the course in the restaurant on a Monday for six hours. And that way we have 10 certificates on the wall so the health inspector is happy. Right. And then everybody's on board so then the bartender goes downstairs to put the fruit away and says, oh, the, you know, the lemons are in the wrong spot. Like, it's good that they know that the lemons are in the wrong spot. Okay. Uh, and then everybody's sort of on the same page. Then you can stop worrying about it. Okay. So what sorts of things are, are does a kitchen staff need to know to keep things clean and safe? I mean, safe? really basic things like... Uh, well, washing your hands? Yeah. Well, well, you know what? That's I mean, washing your hands is uh, funny. It's like not something you ever talk about. Everybody does it. It's just not something that's well, I hope, top of I mind. Hope, I hope so. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> so you go to restaurants now where you see signs in the bathroom. Hey, right. the staff uses this bathroom. Please wash your hands. And you think to yourself, really? But more importantly than that, it's like fridge temperatures. Um, uh, having your hand wash station stocked with soap and paper towels, because if they're not, that's a major no-no. Right. Um, raw meat on the bottom of a shelf in a walk-in fridge is a big deal. Yeah. So if somebody threw a, uh, was thawing some fish 
it has to go in the bottom shelf right. underneath the fruits and vegetables so that no blood could drip on anything else. And then it works its way up from there. And that's a big thing because a guy will walk in a walk-in fridge and throw a bucket of, I don't know, rapini right. on a shelf and not think twice, oh, you can't put that next to the... But now, if I walk in, the bartender walks in, the cook, well, everybody knows that's not what happens. And I imagine there's a whole protocol for, for both opening and closing in terms of, of cleaning the kitchen and the front. Yeah, and it's not... Uh, cleanliness is something that health inspection looks at and that we look at heavily, but we I have people that come in and, and clean for us, after us, because after an eight-hour shift, you can only expect so much of a guy or right. girl to clean, right? Like, right? And then we bring somebody in every night or a couple of days a week to do the kitchen, and they come in after us and clean even more. Um, but it's more food safety with the health inspectors today. I mean, they look at cleanliness, and as long as it looks okay, they're fine with it. Right. But it's uh, keeping food uh, covered up with lids, keeping food in the right places, keeping fridges at the right temperature. What about food access? Like, so you're sourcing food, like raw materials, the raw foods from yeah. everywhere. Do you concern yourself about where it's coming from? And, I, and No. I mean, we buy from reputable sources. If you're going to buy from a hunter, I think that's probably against the law because it has to come yep. from a federally inspected you know, meat plant. Right. Okay. But then some of the, I mean, some places I go to, like from a restaurant, there's a sterility to too much cleanliness. Like you walk in sometimes and you're like, it's so stark and so clean, which is great, but it's it's hard to create like what, our look, like that comfortable look. I mean, you can name a hundred restaurants that have a sort of a comfortable home. Rustica. Look. Yeah, <laughs> Rustica. But yet they're still clean. Yeah. But they have a, a haphazard look about it. Yeah. And then a lot of the new restaurants are so, I find just so sterile. They've taken some of that out of it. So, you know, I watch the Food Network a lot and, you know, there's these restaurant makeover shows, right? So, you know, I presume they're picking some disastrous restaurants because, you oh, know, yeah. they're the and ones in it up. And, 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 you know, and exactly. I don't know whether they're planting dead rats or things like that, but the kind of shocking things that you see, like grease traps that haven't been cleaned or, or fridges that aren't working, is that is that rare or does that happen? No, that definitely happens. Yeah, I mean, you get an old... Uh, you get a burnt out chef at an old restaurant and he just stops caring and yeah. doesn't put dates on food and doesn't rotate food. And then from an owner perspective, I mean, like it's expensive to keep a restaurant clean. Yeah, I would think. I mean, we have window washers. We have cleaners two days a week, four days a week in the dining room, two days a week in the kitchen. Then you have grease trap cleaners Then you have pest control. Then, uh, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, it's really expensive. Uh, and then old buildings like, you know, we have one of one of our restaurants is on the Danforth and it's right. a 150 year old building. Well, yeah, of course there's issues. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. And and when you're downtown and, you know, there's... Oh, I mean, look, you pick a street like... Uh, any Spadina. Old, yeah, Spadina is the obvious example, but that's beyond some of their control. Those are old buildings on the subway line. Like, I mean, being on the subway line is by far a big like a big problem. Because, because why? Because vermin... Mice and rats, uh, everything's in there. Yeah. You know, and they live in there. Okay. So everybody who's been to a restaurant, you know, has seen those signs in the window, the green, yellow, red, but they may not understand, you know, what is actually going on. So can you sort of summarize? Like, We could, what? We could definitely touch on it. I mean, yeah. it, it's not as um, as powerful as it was three or five years ago. When the oh, media, really? Is it, I mean, there was a while there where the media was really all over them. Uh, inspectors, that is. Uh, where they, And so... I like to see a green. I mean, you, sh you can't go in if it's what? not a green. You'll right. see a yellow sometimes. It just, I mean, you can get a yellow for serious infractions. Right. And you can get a yellow for one fridge and not being at the right temperature and one hand wash station not having soap on it. So if you see if you see that somebody's got a conditional, that's the yellow, yes. right? Conditional pass. You can, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're eating in a in a in a horribly contaminated no, facility. No. It could be something like older equipment or Yeah, I mean it's the relationship with your health inspector. I mean most of the people that we deal with and maybe it's us, maybe it's them, they're human. Right. And we can have a conversation about certain things. 
Um, and then there was a while there when the media was really all over them, and there was no, there was none of that. It okay. was like, there's no soap there, and your fridge is at five. That's it, yellow. And that normally doesn't happen. There's a conversation that happens. Oh, let me get a paper towel there. Oh, let me turn that fridge down and get a guy in to fix it. Uh, things like that used to not happen for a number of years. And now I think we're back to like a, a human part of it. But I mean, if there is a fridge that's at wrong temperature and it's holding, you know, food that's delicate, then that would be a problem. Uh, a dishwasher is another big one. If the dishwasher chemicals are incorrect, like they'll yell at you almost immediately because those plates and glasses are going through. Well, they're being churned out right. multiple times a night. You don't want that chemically no, no, taste on your no. food. Food. And also, I presume they, it has to be a certain temperature. It gets to a certain heat. If they're being cleaned oh, yeah. quickly, it's got to be steaming that, hot, right? This only works for my, you know, there's different ones, but like 140 to 160, and so the water's got to be hot. And then there's three chemicals that have to feed in. And so I can tell you, you know, from experience, the bleach line yeah. is the one that corrodes the most. And no one would ever notice it's corroded unless you test that water every day, which is what we do now. So yeah. every day before service, we do a bleach pH test, I don't know what it's called. Yeah. Uh, but lots of guys don't do that. I mean, that's just teaching your staff to do that kind of stuff. Do you know when you're being inspected? Do they give you a heads up? Yeah, or is I, it? No, they do not give you a heads up, but uh, you have an idea. Like it's every every quarter, usually every three to four oh, months. Oh, really? It's that often? Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you get enough enough years under your belt where you have no infractions, they drop you down to three times a year. And even I've, I've heard now, if there's no food production, they'll drop you down to two times a year. And how long are these inspections? How long are they at it for? Uh, it varies on the inspector. Do anybody um, have a white glove? Do they come in with the white no glove? No white glove. They usually have some tools on their belts. Uh, yeah. Mainly thermometers. Okay. Um, what are some of the warning signs? So like, let, let's sort of switch gears. You go to a restaurant. What are some of the warning signs as a patron that maybe this place isn't as clean as it should be? That's, I mean, that's hard because there's some restaurants that are very old and in old buildings and you would think, oh, that, you know, that bathroom looks rough or that. Well, to me, that's the first, like, like if I see yeah. that, if I see that a bathroom is in rough shape, like it has to be in pretty rough shape. Then I mean, it's really the end. Well, I've been to some very high end restaurants where, you know, they're, they're charging, you know, $200 a couple and you go into the bathroom and I appreciate it maybe in an older building, but mm. it looks like nobody's been in to clean it in maybe a week and a well, half. That's bad, yeah. Right. And, and then it makes you think, okay, well, if they're not cleaning the bathroom, that stems from the top. Right. Exactly. Then, then what else is going on? Right. Way more. <laughs> I look at things like where, they, where the owner's given up, and usually it's like around the baseboards, like cleaning, under the kitchen um, right. appliances, if you don't see fresh pest control or fresh... Uh, yeah, but cooking. a patron isn't going to see that, No, right? it's true, but... And then good practices from staff, too, when yeah. you're coming out with a spray bottle and wiping your table where the bartender's, you know, washing their hands in between cutting lemons and making a cocktail, like just little things like that will give you a sign that, okay, everybody's kind of on the same team here. Okay. One last question, and this is this one, I'm asking this one... For me, sometimes you go to a restaurant and you don't feel well after, and no. you know you're you're concerned that is this something I've eaten or am I just coming down with something? So, what would be the sign that you've eaten bad food? We like, could do well. We could do a whole show just on. Well, that. maybe that's our next show. Yeah, I mean, because there's an incubation period for most illnesses. So, if you've eaten at a restaurant, gone home and got sick, it's generally something you've eaten in the last, I believe, seventy two hours. Okay. That's how long incubation is for like most food poisoning, minus like uh, eating a bad oyster and two other ones I, I can't name. All right. Well, let's leave it, leave it for next time. We'll talk about that next time. Awesome. All right. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on Facebook at The Tonic Talk Show or at Jamie Busson on Instagram. For great articles by Joel Thuna and Carlisle Jansen, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. 
Photonics available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at toniktoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss your pet's joint health, making salads with our resident salad whisperer, and health washing. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.